0: Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning and we contemplate all that you are doing in our midst, as you open up your word to us, as you confront us with our own lack of devotion, our own attachment to the things of this world, let us learn from the example of this woman who gave all without thought of cost and help us to see that to those who are forgiven much they love much and if we don't remember the price that has been paid we'll quickly see our devotion fade open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law this morning we pray in the matchless name of Jesus our Lord and Savior and all God's people said Amen Lucy Maud Montgomery made this, I think, wonderful quote. She is well-known, a Canadian author, for writing the books Anne of Green Gables, and she said, twilight drops her curtain down and pins it with a star. Isn't that a beautiful way to describe the evening? You think of the amazing display of God's creation, and even when they were made, and the in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, it tells us he made the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night light to rule the night, and he also made the stars. It's kind of like it's just thrown in there. It was no big deal, but they are so amazing. I think it was Emerson who said, if the stars only came out once every hundred years, what a sight that would be. And people wouldn't stop talking about the city of God being displayed in the evening in these magnificent stars. But they come out every night. And because they do, we treat them as common and take them for granted. But as amazing as the stars are, they're best seen with a dark background. That is, when God pins the stars to the twilight. And the nighttime is the best time to see the stars. It's interesting, too, that when God talks about his stars, when when he talks about individuals who are exceptional in their devotion, it always helps to put their wonderful story against the backdrop of darkness. And I think that's maybe what Mark had in mind when we open up the scriptures to Mark chapter 14. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. For Mark gives us two stories of amazing contrast. One story so dark and devious that the second story shines with even brighter light. One story that begins with, Conspiracy and the other story that displays amazing devotion. One of terrible treachery and the other of tremendous sacrifice. And the dark stories make the bright story shine even brighter. The scriptures as we begin to read in verse 1 says, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, or the people may riot. Now as if these are bookends, you jump down to verse 10 and we read, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and they promised to give him money so he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. Mark, with just a few words, gives us the the basics of what Judas is going to do. It doesn't talk about Satan entering into him. It doesn't talk about his negotiations with the high priest. It just simply says that he was willing to give him up. Very interesting. So the Story of treachery, this horrible act, is conspiracy on the part of the religious leaders. And yet with caution. Not during the feast. You see, this is Passover time and also the time of unleavened bread. These two events join together and are often spoken as one, although they are separate. Passover Of course, remembering when the death angel went through the land of Egypt and passed over the Hebrew people who had blood on the door. And unleavened bread speaks of the barley harvest that comes in. Passover happens on the 14th of Nisan, a month in the spring in the Jewish calendar. And as soon as it's done, the next seven days are unleavened bread and they're joined together as though they are one. I think that answers one of the discrepancies that comes up in this story we're about to study. Whereas in one portion of scripture, John he talks about six days before the Passover and Mark talks about two days before the Passover. The reason is because these feasts are together and they really uh, have a, a period of about seven days together. The Religious leaders for a long time have wanted to kill Jesus. You can Go all the way back to Mark chapter 3. You don't need to turn there, but Mark chapter 3, and we read in that story that when Jesus said he was the Lord of the Sabbath and healed on the Sabbath, that the Pharisees joined together with the Herodians, something they never did, and began to plot to kill Christ. The very beginning of his ministry. But it wasn't his time, and God had protected him all the way. And then in this last week in Jerusalem, when Christ comes in, the triumphal entry early in the week, again, they gather together, they want to arrest Christ, but they're afraid of the crowd because during the festival, the size of Jerusalem expands tremendously. There might be two million people in the city, at least a quarter of a million people, far more than the normal inhabitants. For this is one of the three festivals that they must attend. That is, every male within 15 miles of Jerusalem has to attend. And every Jew, every male wanted to attend this great Passover festival in Jerusalem. Eat the Passover in Jerusalem. Nothing better than that. And a lot of people came down from the Galilee where Jesus was from. And he had a lot of support up there. So the religious leaders knew that the crowd still loved him and if they took action against Jesus publicly, for sure there would be a riot. So they looked for some sly, devious, crafty way to kill him, but not during the feast. And yet when Judas appeared, as we read in verse 10 and 11, and willingly said, hey, I know where we can get him, where it's private, He's almost totally alone at night, often spends time in this house or often in the garden and we can find him there and so that's how Judas betrays, one of the worst betrayals certainly in the world. But in the midst of these bookends of betrayal and conspiracy, you've got this incredible act of devotion. Let me read that to you. It says, verse three, while he was in Bethany. Bethany is just a short walk from the Mount of Olives, just a short walk from the city of Jerusalem, two miles from Jerusalem, but they were already halfway there on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus was in a home in Bethany, reclining at the table. It was the home of a man known as Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. So let's look at the setting just for a moment and and then try to understand the people that are here. I think you might find something very interesting. There are actually three stories in the Gospels about a woman pouring perfume on Christ. I think two of them are the same. What we find here in Mark and what we find in John are the same. The one in Luke is actually a story that probably is a different setting altogether, a different home and a different outcome. And so when we put these stories together, we began to get an idea of what was happening. Who is this Simon guy? Well, we don't know a whole lot about Simon, except he was a leper, and if he's holding a feast, if he's holding a dinner for people to come, he is no longer a leper, he's a cured leper, and let me give you one guess who cured him. This is probably an appreciation dinner. Wouldn't you have one if Jesus healed you from a deadly disease? Wouldn't you want to invite others to come over and express your devotion? Now John gives names. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, the portion that Cam read just a moment ago, John identifies some of the other people at the dinner. He says, Martha is there, and Mary is there, and Lazarus is there. Convinced that Simon the leper is actually the father of Mary and Martha. Because when you read Mark, it sounds like they're in Simon's home, and when you read John, it sounds like they're in Mary and Martha's home. And and some people thought, well, these must be two different events. Well, maybe, just maybe, and it's only a guess, Simon the leper was the father to Mary and Martha. And by the way, who's the one who breaks the jar and pours the perfume? On Jesus, John gives names. (laughs) It was Mary. The one who, when she's mentioned in the scripture three different times, she's always at the feet of Jesus. In John chapter 11 and here and Luke chapter 10, always at the feet of Jesus. Wouldn't you like to be characterized by always sitting at the feet of Jesus? You know, it's dangerous to be characterized for your whole life by one event. Let me prove it to you. Doubting Thomas. That guy blew it one time, missed church one Sunday night and and lived to regret it the rest of his life. Doubting Thomas. You know, you study the scriptures and many other times he's pretty solid. Doubting, but Mary is devoted and committed And yet it seems to be the characteristic of her life. The Bible tells us that they're reclining at the table. Jesus is reclining at the table, which means it's probably a formal dinner. And when you're reclining, it's easy for someone to come up from behind and anoint you. And by the way, it was customary to wash the feet of the guests and anoint them with oil. But this story is over the top. And who else is at the table sitting and eating with others? It's the dead guy, Lazarus. Don't you think that would have been an interesting conversation? Hey, you're looking pretty good. (laughs) Last time I saw you, you were dead. Hey, how was it? What was it like on the other side? Tell me what you've been doing since Jesus gave you life. And John tells us that there was a whole lot of people outside of the door because here's the dead guy come to life. I mean, this wasn't a story done in a corner. Just like the resurrection. Just like the crucifixion. Done before the watching eyes of a waiting world. And many were believing in Christ because of this miracle. I think that would have been a very interesting dinner. And John tells us that During the dinner, Mary came up behind Jesus as he was reclining and poured perfume on his head, Mark says. John says, on his feet. That's not a contradiction. She just poured it all over. A couple drops, customary. But this, again, is extravagant. This goes against what is proper. (laughs) It's improper for a woman to come into the dinner where only men are eating. It's improper to put a few drops, uh, uh, to put a whole flask of oil on one of the guests. It's an example of tremendous devotion. Remember earlier on in the week when the widow gave her two mites into the offering plate that Jesus said, This woman is given more than all the others, even though the financial amount. If you were simply to add it up, wouldn't be more. But she gave more because she gave out of her poverty. It was a wonderful example of generosity. And here in Mary's life is an amazing example of devotion. And it is significant that it's two women who are brought up as amazing examples in an often male-dominated world. What were the disciples doing They were trying to figure things out. See, they had goals of a kingdom and goals of position and goals of reward and power and authority in this new kingdom, and it wasn't going so well. And here are the women devoted to Christ and clearly showing up the men. In the history of the church of Jesus Christ, some of the most devoted, sacrificial influential people are women. And I don't think the church recognizes that or gives them enough honor. So Mary not only pours the ointment on the head of Christ, but she pours it on probably the whole body of Christ and the feet of Christ, and then she begins; she lets down her hair, which is a woman's glory, and, and she uses it to wipe up the oil from off his feet. By the way, we find out that this oil is a very expensive oil. It's in a flask, an alabaster jar, which itself would have been rather expensive and was sealed permanently to protect the oil on the inside. It was pure nard. It comes from a plant in India. So it's a very rare oil, and it's expensive. And in fact, in one of the other Gospels, we find out that it's worth, 300 denarii, which is almost a year's wages. What are the year's wages today for a common laborer? Twenty-five? 35,000? Uh, let's just take the low number of 20,000. Imagine giving such a gift. And when you break the alabaster jar, there's no putting it back together again. She broke it, and she poured it all out. Some people believe that this might have been a family heirloom handed down from generation to generation. Others say because of its value, it would have been like her her savings account. You know, for a time of financial need, it might have been her 401K, the only retirement plan she had. And while the disciples are looking for position and power and what they can get out of the kingdom, Mary gives it all up. Wow. What an act of devotion. So the Bible tells us that the disciples became indignant. Verse four. Some of those who were present, there were others, but The disciples were there. They became indignant. Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. The Greek word for rebuking harshly is a very interesting word. It's the term that is used when horses snort. (laughs) You know, sometimes when people get emotional and, and they... They're angry, and you just see them snorting in anger over what this woman did. Why? She showed them up. And by the way, John gives names. He doesn't tell us, he tells us not only who is at the dinner and who the woman is that Mark doesn't name, who pours the ointment on Jesus, but he, John, tells us who the main critic is. And who is it? Judas. Judas is the one who said that money should have been given to the poor. By the way, he was elected treasurer of the twelve and it says in John chapter 12, he didn't say this because he was interested in the poor, he said it because he was interested in the money and he'd been stealing money out of the coffers of the disciples and no one knew it. He said it because he was a thief. And now we get the picture of of Judas who might have started out well and hitched his wagon to Christ for the hope of having a position and power in the kingdom but when things weren't going well, quickly turned on him. And he was a greedy person who would soon sell Jesus for the price of a slave 30 pieces of silver. And when he saw all that money being wasted, he said that should have been given to the poor. By the way, it was customary to give offerings to the poor during the evening of the Passover. But critics often speak about great and grand devotion when in their own heart and life, their commitment to the Savior is far from sterling. Judas is the one who's going to sell Jesus out. And so in a sense... He couldn't tell the difference between grace and waste. He didn't know the value, the true value of things. And by the way, the critics often say more about themselves than they do the people they're criticizing. I find it interesting that in the fellowship of the saints, there is always someone to criticize your act of devotion if it appears to be too much over the top. There's always someone with a wet blanket to throw it on your hot zeal because you're showing the rest of us up. And we're not sure that we can endure that. And so the snorting continued from Judas and the others around him. By the way, there were a lot of poor in Jerusalem. There's a lot of people that very moment who needed money and needed help and needed food and needed shelter and needed a gift. Was it a waste? Certainly she could have maybe poured some of it out and given the rest of it to the poor. That would have been appropriate. And so while the disciples are snorting their criticisms, Jesus responds. And I love the response of Christ. The Bible simply tells us, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? (laughs) She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but I'm not going to be here long. And she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Wow, there's a lot in that brief soliloquy. There's a lot in that brief statement. And here Jesus describes her devotion. He describes it first of all as being very worshipful. She's done a good thing to me. It was an act of worship. We're told in in Luke chapter seven that those who are forgiven little Show a little love. But those who are forgiven much show all kinds of gratitude. Now think about it. Her brother Lazarus was raised from the dead. She's happy about that. And if it is her father who was the leper and has been cured, she's happy about that. And in an act of devotion... She pours the perfume on Christ, not counting the cost. She did what she could. And maybe this is the only thing that she could do of significance that would display her love to Jesus Christ. But it was a wonderful act of worship. Extravagant? Absolutely. Sacrificial? Certainly. And Jesus is looking for people to do something similar in the sense of sacrifice. This story doesn't mean that you have to give all the financial resources you have to Christ, but it does mean you put Christ first, right? It does mean, Romans 12, that you present your body and everything you have and everything you are as a living sacrifice to Jesus Christ. It means that sometimes our love for Christ displays itself in this reckless, non-productive act. It appears non-productive as we give to Christ everything we possess. The psalmist said in Psalm 116, verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits? And Mary said, I don't have much, but I'll do what I can. I'm just going to give him the most expensive thing I own." And when she broke the jar, It could never be put back together again. Secondly, Jesus says this devotion was a beautiful act. Beautiful. There are two Greek words that are translated good. One means good in the sense of morality. The other means good in the sense of beauty. Sometimes you can have something good morally that is not necessarily beautiful. But sometimes the act is not only right morally, but it has a sense of aesthetic beauty to it. And Jesus uses that second term. What she has done to me is a beautiful act. Now, I don't want to get too carried away with this, but you and I sometimes have a sense where we attack beauty in the name of being pragmatic. I like what Kent Hughes said about this. If you're an artist or a musician, you can find affirmation in knowing that Jesus aligns himself with you by praising Mary's nonproductive act of devotion. So the artist spends hours painting a beautiful picture depicting the, the crucifixion of Christ and some well-meaning person says, you're wasting your time. And sometimes people with the arts who want to express their devotion to Christ in a beautiful way are criticized by the pragmatist who says, that's not productive. And Jesus said, she's done a beautiful thing. Isn't that amazing? You're wasting your life, someone will say to you. Your time, your energy, your resources, by giving all you have to Christ. Why, you could have taken your talent and you could have done something with it. You could have been famous. You could have been somebody. And the person who loves Jesus Christ said, he gave his all for me. It's a little thing if I give my all back in return. It was a beautiful thing. By the way, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 15, 11, the poor shall never cease out of the land. You'll always have the poor with you. And some people have missed translated that to mean you don't serve the poor. You don't give to the poor. They're always there, so don't even try to help. No, that's not what he's saying. He says the poor are perpetually here. I'm here momentarily. If you're gonna do something for me, better do it now. In a couple days, it will be too late. And so she acted Which means that her act was also insightful. There's a debate about this. Jesus said, she's poured perfume on my body in preparation for my burial. Now, did Mary know that Christ was going to die soon? And there's the debate. I seem to feel that she did. But again, beyond the disciples, who constantly didn't get it, when three times, three different times in Mark, Jesus predicted that he was going to go to Rome and be mistreated and even crucified, he spelled it out, and they still, still didn't understand. Mary somehow got it. This was the last week. And so she broke the flask. By the way, often when people died, precious perfumes were poured on the body, because they didn't embalm, and they would break the vase or the container the perfume was in, and they would put the shards, the fragments, into the coffin with the dead person. I think Mary broke the bottle and said, take it with you. She knew that he was going to die, the disciples didn't get it. She was very insightful. When Martha was always serving, Mary was there worshiping. And nothing bad about serving, but Jesus first. That was Mary's cry. And what an example she is to us. And her act was not only worshipful and beautiful and insightful theologically, but I think her act was impactful. I like what John says. And the house was filled with fragrance. Now Mark doesn't mention that, but can you imagine this type of extract that is so potent and to pour the whole flask on someone? We, we have sections in our own church here that are fragrance-free so some of you can sit through the service and not choke to death. Imagine what that place must have smelled like. Someone has well said that perfume is the most intense form of memory. I think it was Estee Lauder who said that. but It's true, isn't it? You, you get a smell and you remember the place and you remember the time and you remember the people. Smells are an amazing and intense and powerful trigger to cause you to remember. And I'm sure that smell the rest of their lives spoke of Mary's devotion. It was impactful. But Jesus said, what she has done, whenever the gospel is preached, all over the world, what she has done will be spoken. Just like today, thousands of years later, she becomes part of the gospel story. Her devotion to Christ becomes one of the main Biblical examples authorized by Christ himself to be repeated time and time and time again talk about impact, a perpetual memorial. I wonder what kind of fragrance I leave and I wonder how impactful it is to those who see my life. It was 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul said, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Remember that? We're the fragrance of Christ to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To those who are being saved, we're the fragrance of life. It's a beautiful smell, but to those who are perishing, it's a fragrance of death. I can imagine if you used a powerful fragrance when you buried your loved one, that fragrance would always remind you of their death, but this fragrance would always remind those disciples of real devotion. And I wonder what kind of fragrance you leave. I wonder what kind of smell follows us and what people think. The nighttime is the best time to see the stars. And Jesus is simply pointing out that what Mary has done, especially when contrasted to what Judas is going to do, the critic, what what Mary has done is not wasted. It's powerful. And whatever you do for Jesus Christ will never be Waste. And I think one of the best verses to summarize what Mary has done is found in Second Corinthians chapter 11. I can remember memorizing this verse a while back. It's 2 Corinthians 11 and verse three. And Paul said to the Corinthians, "Who were so distracted by other things, I fear for you. I fear that as the serpent beguiled Eve through his cunning craftiness, So your minds should be led astray from the simplicity of devotion and purity of devotion to Jesus Christ. In other words, the main thing is to keep Christ first and to love him with all your heart and soul and mind and body and strength and everything you have. And don't be led astray by the evil one who wants you to focus on other things. Here's a couple other portions of scripture that uh, take that same verse. Uh, One is the the New English Bible, and it translates this. Don't lose your single-hearted devotion to Christ. And the Living Bible says, may nothing lead you away from pure and simple devotion to Christ. There it is. And if your life is purely honestly, and simply given to Jesus, there's a fragrance about you that everyone will smell, and it will turn their eyes to the Savior. Nothing is wasted when it's done for Christ. Let's pray. O Lord, I pray, may you today speak to every heart, including mine. That our lives would be lived at your feet and for your glory, that we would count no cost too great, no sacrifice, too amazing, nothing over the top if it's truly done for you. And Lord, help us to be careful and protective of our lives so that we will not lose our first love like the people in Ephesus did. I have something against you. You do a lot of good things as a church. You're involved in a lot of activities, but I have something against you. You've left your first love. Restore the joy and love for Christ in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.